Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us in the studio, I'm really pleased to say here in New York is Conrad DeQuadros, RDQ Economics Senior Economist and founding partner as well. Conrad, great to have you with us around the table on this Payrolls Friday. Uh, let's go with the trade story just to begin with. We've talked about markets with uh, Mixer. Let's talk about the economy in the United States. What's the methodology for calculating what this trade story right now means for the U.S. economy? Well, I actually think the bigger difficulty is is not the, the standard methodologies where we're looking at shares of the economy and elasticities and all of that. I, I think the bigger question is is the supply chain and the impact on the supply chain and how that sort of feeds its way through the economy. And, and that could be a lot more problematic. For me, the big question is, what is the president's objective here? Does he want to address some of the intellectual property issues with American companies in China? Or does he just want to get the deficit, get to a smaller deficit with China? If that is the objective, then I think we have a problem. Because um, if it's a smaller deficit with China, then it's going to be larger deficits elsewhere. And then do the targets then change to other countries. Um, so the, the, the president's objectives, I think, have to be clearer, and, and, and then we can have an idea where that's going. I would be shocked if having seen China respond to this first round of tariffs, if we now don't see an upsizing in U.S. tariffs to $200 billion. I think that that's coming. Wow. Um, and so then um, well, uh, that's just not the way the two, president responds to, to back down. The, what is the $200 billion number besides the amount of minutes Neymar is laying on the field in <laughs> agony? What, what is $200 billion the amount of trade, or is that the actual tariff no no that's that, that I think that's the amount of, of Chinese um, products that will that the tariff will be will be placed okay. on um, and so once we get that second round which I, I think is coming since China did respond um, you know we did have the the dollar for dollar response on the first round of tariffs um, then the response from China to that is going to be interesting because we as your prior guest said we, we the China doesn't have the ability to put tariffs on uh, yeah. that amount of US imports because China doesn't import that that much from the US you're gonna have to forgive me for this but it's kind of like a high-level schoolyard fight where you go to the teacher at the end and you say, he hit me first. Um, because a lot of people will write up this story today and they'll say that China retaliated. China retaliated. But in the administration's mind, and in some people's minds, quite justifiably so, it is the United States reciprocating. And until we sort this out, who is reciprocating and who is retaliating? This is going to go on and on, isn't it? I, I, you know, I think that's a very good point, and I think you're absolutely correct. It is it is the U.S. that's responding um, to what it perceives. And I think there, there's some validity to that, that that the way uh, the, the trade is, the U.S. Uh, policies towards U.S. trade are, are, are unfair, and they're looking to, to level the playing field. Um, now, you know, the, 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 I, I think that the difference is, if we look, for example, the, the WTO does an estimate of trade-weighted aggregate tariffs and the differences between tariffs that the that US products face and the rest of the world is not that great and I think yeah. that that's probably the reason why most economists don't think that this is going to become yeah. a full-blown trade war because you don't blow up the world economy because right. of small differences in in aggregate tariffs about four weeks ago John Farrell Justin Wolfers of Michigan put this out and it's shocking how tight and how set low the tariffs are after 40 years of negotiations. I mean, the president completely misses that within his discourse. We do have low single to mid single digit tariffs in the United States and elsewhere in Europe as well. But this goes beyond 
tariff barriers. It's non-tariff barriers to entry. And you strike a really important point on the intellectual property rights. This is something that Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross has really been pushing quite aggressively. Can anything be done there, Conrad? I think so, because that's, I mean, that, that's China just changing ch- changing its policies. And I actually, I actually think that that's how this plays out, and that that's where China has the ability to give a bit, and, and <clears> where it's likely to we'll see some give from China. I mean, if China wants to be this yeah. uh, move from the developing economy into a more developed economy, those are the kind of ch- Changes, structural changes that they have to make. Conrad DeCardos with us, with final thoughts on this job today. He's with RDQ uh, Economics. One of the things we know, Conrad, is when unemployment rate improves, we go from 10% to 5% to 4%, whatever. It's usually linear and it happens a lot faster than things. It gets better faster than we usually perceive. You told us an hour ago we could drive under 3%. You're suggesting to me that 97% or 98.2% of America would be employed? Yes, and that if we are not looking at, and I don't know whether this is the case, but if we are not looking at a recession in 2020, then I think we are are probably going to see an unemployment rate that that moves below below three percent. And the reason is, so we're sitting here at three three and a three quarter percent right now. Um, if we look at the pace of job growth, which has been stronger than I thought it would be this year, and it would be averaging close to two hundred thousand, labor force growth has also been stronger. But on the labor force side, we have the influence of demographics, and those are going to continue to drive lower rates of of labor force participation. Um, and with the kind of job creation that we're seeing, uh, I think that leads to to an unemployment rate that hits three and a half percent by the end of this year, three uh, percent by the end of, mm-hmm. of next year. And and if the economy continues to grow, um, we're, we'll probably see it be, breach three percent once we get into 2020. I mean, the thing to watch on the unemployment rate is when it moves in the other direction. And so, you know, if I'm wrong and the unemployment rate does not continue to decline. Once we see about a half a percentage point rise in the unemployment rate, right. that has been a, a true and tr- tested um, yeah. uh, signal that the economy has gone yeah. into recession. John, so. when, you, when you hear me talk about vector change, that's precisely what it means when Conrad describes a vector flipping. So let me ask you a big question um, for this administration, who have been tremendous with the Federal Reserve. Then a crack appeared last week when uh, Larry Kudlow, the economic advisor to the president, suggested that the Federal Reserve should be perhaps conscious that Good payrolls growth and a strong economy doesn't necessarily mean that inflation's going to run away. What do you think that message was all about? Well, I mean, I think on the on the the comment, I think we just need to remember that this administration just does things differently. And um, you know, we, we when we look at that, that's not a message that the Fed is not getting from elsewhere. Also, right? It's true. I mean, it's on both sides of the aisle. I think there there's there is a level of concern that the Fed. Um, is is tightening or might eventually tighten too much. I'm not concerned about that at, at all in that um, if we look yeah. at, and it was very interesting comment in the minutes yesterday that when they were talking about the yield curve, that they need to look at broader measures of financial conditions. And if we look at broader measures of financial conditions, the one that I focus on is the, the one that the Chicago Fed puts together, because I think that's what the Fed looks at most closely. Um, and that's not showing any tightening in financial conditions. When we include um, not just the yield curve, but 
um, levels of yield, survey data on U.S. On high yield has I mean, performed brilliantly through the year. Yeah, Maybe so, that's an example of that. I mean, I think that's a that's a pretty strong signal that the Fed is is not materially tightening monetary policy. I, I would I would imagine that if monetary policy was getting tighter, financial conditions would also get tighter, and and that's not yeah. happening. So I'm not concerned about the Fed overdoing it here. The tightening we are seeing though is maybe not in the United States. It's in global financial conditions. Is that something they need to think about a little bit more and the potential feedback loop that comes into the United States? Well, and that's, I think, a function of uh, pr- primarily of what's happening with the dollar. And, and you know, the, the Fed is it kind of has its hands tied here because they're, I think they are going to be focused on feedback loops, uh, feedback loops. I think that the right now the feeling is that those feed lo- feedback loops are not particularly right. large and are not going to change the track that the economy is on. Um, but the Fed needs to focus on its primary and congressionally mandated goals, which is the labor market and inflation. And those are arguing for continued moves higher in, in the Fed funds rate. Are, are you going to watch the World Cup today? You asking me? Are, no, Conrad. I'm asking Conrad. Uh, absolutely. You, I'll watch, I'll watch yeah. the World Cup today. There's How many times do you think Neymar will flop? <laughs> I, I mean... You know, it's a big source of study. I mean, John, Andrew Beaton over at the Wall Street Journal just They've done some it great today. work. They've done some I mean, great work. Brazil winning. He flopped 24 minutes, 10 <laughs> seconds. Brazil tied. It goes out to 34 minutes with no falls. No falls. I mean, come on. This is tied into what Brazil's... It's not that he's hurt. It has to do with delaying or... But, or but to be fair to Neymar, he has fouled a lot. He's fouled a lot. A lot of people kick Neymar all the time. I and mean, he, I don't. I don't think the rolling around is okay. justified, Conrad. He's, but he gets he, kicked a lot. He's also a, he's also a little guy. He's five yeah. foot six, one hundred and forty pounds, and you know, you get hit by a big I guy, you're going to go the down. Videos I've seen, they go right after him. Don't oh, they? big time, big yeah. time. They really do. Okay. I'm pleased you're going to watch it though. It's France. Uruguay do you have any first. predictions, Mr. De Quadros? I, I, that's not my area. You're not as sophisticated <laughs> as I am. <laughs> no, I mean, nope. if you look, if you look at my pool on Bloomberg and you see how badly I'm doing, oh, no, you, you no, wouldn't no, be asking no, me that no, question. No, that's no. why. Oh no, no, I have the trophy. <laughs> I've done, I've done really well the last two days. They haven't played. This now, and I know John's got a zillion questions for Alan Kruger about the state of our labor economy. Professor Kruger is at Princeton University, a former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, his public service to President Obama and the nation. But far more than that, one of our most interesting and acute labor economists. The number one feedback now I get, Alan Kruger, is not on Brazil, Belgium, not on the Red Sox. It's on Guys are saying on this show, men and women, that we're fully employed and not one single listener agrees. Are we fully employed? By the traditional measure that economists would use, I would say we're at full employment. But as I've said on your show before, Tom, full employment does not mean perfection. And we are far away from perfection when it comes to the labor market. I mean, John Farrell, I don't know what it's like in the United Kingdom. It's visceral here. People get really upset when they hear suits and ties say full employment. Of course they do. And and that's the kind of campaign the president ran a couple of years back. Um, Alan, it's also hard to reconcile with the payrolls growth that we're seeing. We're looking for another estimate of 195,000 today. How is that possible if we're at full employment? Well, the unemployment rate's been heading down. You know, uh, we haven't seen any recovery in labor force participation. 
In fact, the labor force participation rate has continued to decline since President Trump took office. He hasn't talked about that very much. Um, so the growth has been coming in employment from a decline in unemployment. People are staying in the labor force longer, but they haven't been coming back. Are we starting to see that the labor market slack that people once thought was structural is actually perhaps cyclical? Uh you know, I think we really are confronting structural problems now. We we have uh, – and, and, and the business cycle, the deep recession made the structural problems worse and it delayed our response to them. So the tremendous rise in inequality that we've seen since the 1980s, the polarization that we have in terms of employer demand, the – very heterogeneous quality of education, of the skills of the workforce. I think those are all structural problems, and the business cycle has made them worse. So a lot of people will be asking, where is the wage growth if we're at full employment? Where is it, Alan? Well, some of the wage growth is in bonuses, and we're seeing bonuses. Now, that might not stick um, after we, we hit the peak of this recovery. Uh, and the wage growth has been more sluggish than one would predict from the historical relationship between how tight the labor market is and wage growth. And that's been a trend, to be honest. If you look at the 90s and the first decade of the 2000s, the level of unemployment that's consistent with real wage growth has been moving down, yep. meaning that it takes an even tighter labor market to generate more real wage growth. A lot of people have argued over the last couple of years that the cost of employing someone has gone up by quite a lot. You have to pay for the health care and other add-ons as well. Do you think that some of the story is just not being captured by base salary, that the cost to hire is actually incrementally a lot more expensive than it was, say, 10 years ago? Well, a couple of things there. First, the employment cost index picks up the full cost of hiring someone, picks up not only point. the health insurance cost, but also vacation time. And the employment cost index is up, but not 3% yet, still yep. just below 3%. So that's part of the story. But we're also seeing a slowdown in the growth in healthcare costs. It's begun to pick up over the last year. Uh, but part of the story was we should have seen even stronger wage growth mm -hmm. because health insurance costs were growing more slowly. I just put out on Twitter uh, with your Alan Kruger uh, moniker as well. Uh, maybe it's not the article of the year, but it's the reporting of the year on the gig economy where you've done a lot of work. Elena Samuels, Alana Samuel, Samuels, rather, at the Atlantic Magazine. And she actually went out and got a job with Amazon Flex. And the article is devastating about the new American gig economy, that basically it's a fraud. It's people working at near minimum wage, at minimum wage, net, net, net clean, below minimum wage. What is your research? Does it agree with the reporting of, of Alana Samuels? I think what we see in the gig economy by and large is very elastic supply, meaning this is a place where people can find work. She describes that, yeah. They float into that sector. And initially, wages may have been higher than someone could earn as a taxi driver or other parts of the yeah. economy. But because of the elastic supply, I think we're seeing an equilibrium where the wage is pushed pretty low. The wage is pushed pretty low within the microeconomics as an income and a substitute effect. Or is it the new atomization of unions? We started out with the guilds in Europe a million years ago. John Farrell, I don't know if you know this, Alan Kruger does like a 10-week trip every year doing research on the guilds. 
of cafes in Venice. I, and, I know he spends a lot of time know, in Italy. It's a lot I of don't time. know how much research it's a lot gets of time done. In, in Italy. <laughs> but whether it's you researching the guilds of Italy or it's the death of unions in America, my key question today is, is the gig economy the new death of unions? Well, I think unions uh, were already on their deathbed. And I think the recent Supreme Court decision in the Janus case is going to make it even harder for the one area where unions had some strength. Uh, we're going to see a lot more free riding where workers get the benefits of what's left of unions and they're not paying uh, for those services. Uh, I've supported for a long time new structures of unions, which will enable gig workers to organize, yeah, but, to negotiate, but, to try to improve their terms okay, and conditions Forget of work. about Detroit unions where you made 128000 You never thought you'd make that before. The fact is we've gone from 60000 a year union, you know, I'm just using old numbers, down to 28000 non-union. And now we're going to gig economy, which is somewhere below that 28,000. Is it is Mr. Bezos and others taking advantage of this new wave of atomization of your American labor economy? Yeah, I think worker bargaining power has been declining for lots of reasons. Part of it's the decline in unions. Part of it is practices companies use. Uh, Amazon has non-compete clauses where you can't go work for another warehouse in some cases. Uh, Fast food restaurants right. have no poaching agreements where they won't hire workers away from other restaurants in their chain. I think all of these practices have weakened, right. reduced competition for workers. John, I think this is a huge deal. I don't mean to interrupt, John, but I know you're over there calculating how much Neymar has been on the field rolling around. No, so, I was yeah. looking at Juventus over the last five days. What do they do? The oh, the st stock. The stock, the stock is up 32%. They've added about two hundred. Is there any news on the Ronaldo watch? Not, not at the moment, but they've added 280-something million euros to the market cap. We had to medicate Pharaoh yesterday. I don't know if you know this, Alan, but he's AC Milanish. And it's sort of like <laughs> Alan Mickey actually does know sucks. that. Alan does know that. Oh, yeah. But they, we had to medicate John about 11 a.m. yesterday. Alan's got something to say about your tennis, too. I think Alan's going to give you some lessons. What, come on. I mean, you can't get a hotel room I, in London. I think Wimbledon needs its fair share of time on this show. Uh, Francis Tiafo is into the third round, first time in a major. There you go. Keep going, Alan. Don't stop. <laughs> Please. Keep going. Is Federer getting too old? It doesn't look like it on the court. Yeah. No, seriously. <laughs> He's I mean, got like... such a beautiful game. Okay, now the new game at Wimbledon where it's grass in the old days. Is the grass today the same as the old grass where the ball slid like eight feet? Uh, it stays awfully low. I don't yeah. know if it's the same, but it still stays low. How does Nadal do it at Wimbledon? Nadal is a clay guy who loves Roland Garros in France. Can he play at Wimbledon and win, or is it just such a different game? It's a harder game for him. I yeah. certainly wouldn't rule it out. I'll tell you one thing that amazes me about Nadal at the French Open and at the U.S. Open. His speed is extraordinary. Abil ability to get around the court. The, the, yeah. the way, he, the burst he takes, it's unbelievable. Okay. This is a credit, credit important. This goes like the neighbor. Fun. Amateurs in tennis, read me, shade to our forehand. Which side did those guys shade to? Their backhands are so good, they almost shade to go to the backhand, don't they? Well, Nadal's backhand is really a two-handed forehand. But you'll see, so you, true. You, you'll see them run around their backhand. You know, they'll hit inside-out forehand by yeah. running around their backhand. I'm, I'm, and it also, look how fast they are to run around their backhand. Yeah. Best, best tennis player you ever saw? Ever, oh, it has to be Federer. Really? I saw Rosie Casals warm up at Forest Hill. She was a giant, like four feet, ten inches. Yeah. She would practice her leap. And she would get, she was like an NBA player. She would get literally a foot and a half off the ground. It was amazing. Well, you know, that's one thing I like about tennis. You could be any size. There, there, there are uh, female players on tour, five foot two, yeah. five foot three. 
I mean, this is great, John. I had no idea I was waking up to Redux my tennis well, life. I didn't realize you ever played. Oh, I did. I'd love to see you. Do you know how many women? I would love to see you. Do you know how many women's Davis rackets I snapped? In Can college? we do a charity tennis match? <laughs> if, if you want to write in on Twitter at Ferro TV, and I'll if volunteer. we can raise some money to get Tom <laughs> Key to play tennis. It is now our great pleasure to bring uh, to you from the University of Michigan, Betsy Stevenson, who does some exceptionally creative research on the American labor economy. Betsy, I'm going to ask you the question that has been a theme today, which is a lot of fancy people in fancy suits and ties and dresses tell us that America's fully employed and aggressively our listening audience doesn't agree. Which is it? Um, well, that's a, a great question, and I think is that what happens is we take a look at the data and we see that unemployment rates are really low. So the issue about getting more Americans employed really isn't about bringing the unemployment rate down lower. It's about bringing more people into the labor market. But I think the thing that you hear from your listeners that the average person hears or, or believes is that they don't have the job they necessarily want or they don't have the hours they want, or they're not able to use their skills appropriately. So economists are just looking at how many people are out there looking for work that don't have any. But of course, you're not unemployed if you have, uh, a, if you have a, a full-time job, but it's not the, in the career you were hoping to have, the career you trained for, um, if there's yeah. no ability to move up, um, or even if you're part-time, right? And we, we've paid a lot of, te- of attention to those part-time numbers. Now, that's not going on. We still, we've you know seen the number of people employed part-time has come way down as well. Um, we do have a pretty tight labor market. The question is, when are employers going to start reacting to that by providing people more training, by giving them upward mobility, and by the big thing everybody wants, which is higher wages. Betsy, I hear for a couple of years now that um, we've got a tight labor market, but then we carry on printing circa 200,000 jobs every single month in a payrolls report, and the participation rate has ticked higher again today. And I'm just wondering how much hidden unemployment there actually is and how many people there are available to come back into the workforce. Um, you know, that that's a really hard question because the people who are... You know, a lot of people are choosing not to work. Whatever their outside option is, maybe it's staying home with their kids. Um, maybe it's you know taking care of an elderly relative. Maybe it's living off of their savings. Whatever their options are, they've got to have something, a job that looks good enough that they want to give that up. And that's a really hard thing for us to measure. How many people out there are right on the cusp of thinking if the right job comes along, I would change what I'm doing. You know, if you look at, at the history of the United States labor market, I mean, our labor force participation surged in the 80s and 90s, but that's right. because women decided to give up staying home and come into the labor market. We've had a lot of men over the last 50 years decide that they have better things to do besides working. 
And we've well, had a lot of economists trying to figure out what we're going to do to turn that around. And that is a, right. a 50-year trend that we haven't seen turn around. I mean, if you just join us, Betsy Stevenson with us with the Ford School, University of Michigan, and exceptionally good at core economics, but linking it into policy. What should be the optimal policy, Professor Stevenson, of the man session? If there is a man session, and yeah, it's better than it used to be, but a lot of people listening to this, as you correctly state, would say they're underemployed. What's the policy to jumpstart this? Well, I would not call it a man session because, again, a lot of this is um, men who are who have other alternatives who have people who are supporting them, parents or girlfriends or wives. And what we have to do, though, is make work appealing to them. We have to find ways in which they feel valued at work. And the problem is we've shifted from an economy where we make stuff to an economy where we do stuff for other people. And, you know, that's what we're seeing in policy right now is trying to Right. To say, well, if we put up trade barriers, if we, um, you know, do a bunch of things, we can start making stuff. But I feel very strongly that getting people jobs that pay them very little, assembling things, um, you know, the kind of jobs that are currently being done in China, is not going to bring these guys back into the labor market because for. You know, right. For them to have dignity in their jobs, it's not just about building well, something. It's about being paid a respectable wage. So what we've got to do is find ways to make the new economy appealing to men who have very traditional notions of masculinity. I mean, Professor Stevenson, if I look at the Atlantic Magazine article by Alana Samuels, which maybe is my reporting article of the year, I delivered packages for Amazon, and it was a nightmare. And Alana goes into excruciating uh, granularity on the gig economy. Have we gone from the unions of your Detroit, your Ann Arbor, your Dearborn, have we gone from the unions to the atomization of it down to the non-union milieu we've been in for 20 years, and now we're to something new with a gig economy that's even sub-below what we were 10 years ago? Are we in a, a new round of atomizing of the labor economy? Well, one thing we know is it's taken us a long time to really firmly establish the research, but unions reduce inequality and unions boost wages. And that's coming on the heels of a latest Supreme Court decision that has undermined unions. Unions are in uh, massive decline in the United States. In fact, it's almost impossible to find a private sector unionized job uh, nowadays. And you know, that means that we're removing a force that has traditionally served to give workers access to better jobs. So that's definitely happening. The, the gig economy, it is not most people's primary job. So the BLS just had a data yeah, come I out saw on that, that yeah. found that that was. But what they did that, that I think missed what people are seeing is that they were looking at primary jobs. What people are doing is scrambling to make a buck on the side, and that's because their primary job isn't delivering for them anymore. And so they're picking up something on the side. Maybe it's driving for Uber. Maybe it's delivering packages. Um, they're, they're 
they're finding some sort of side hustle okay, in order to try to I, make things work. That you have to get a lot of fancy degrees, John Tucker, so you could side hustle is PhD, oh, you know, Ann Arbor. CFA level side, three. Side hustle. Betsy, this has been great. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Betsy Stevenson, and I do want to get her on uh, more to talk. I love that phrase, side hustle, exactly characterizes what Alana Samuels captures. Here is our John Farrell with Dr. Hesed. Take the opportunity now for welcome our listeners on Bloomberg Radio and for our viewers on Bloomberg TV. I'm really pleased to say that we can cross over to the White House now for the Trump administration's views on the payrolls report. We're joined by Kevin Hassett, the Council of Economic Advisers chairman. Hey, Kevin, it's always great to catch up with you. Great to be back, yeah. Solid payrolls growth. Thanks for giving your time to Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio this morning. I'm just wondering how you stopped the president from tweeting again this morning. Hey, like always, I briefed the president on the jobs report way ahead of time, and, and you know, like before, he didn't, did not reveal the numbers or anything. So. Hey, Kevin, let's not go there. Let's talk about how solid the payrolls growth looks and how yeah. unemployment starts to be ticking a little bit higher. Do you think there's some evidence here that this is a labor market that needs to absorb some slack still? Oh, yeah, there's definitely uh, still a lot of room for the labor market to absorb the slack. And again, this is a great jobs report. Uh, we, through the year, are averaging about 215,000 jobs per month, and we're pretty much right on that. I think that you had mentioned that the markets weren't moving a lot, and I think it's because this is a jobs report that was pretty much uh, about what's been happening for the rest of the year. The one thing that was different uh, is that the unemployment rate inched up, but the reason it did 100% is because there was almost, I guess we could almost call it a stampede of people back into the labor force. And that's something that President Trump has emphasized as a key objective of his policies going all the way back to the campaign. And so it was really heartening to see it. I know it looks like it's bad news when the unemployment rate goes up, but if it goes up because people are quitting their jobs more and heading back into the labor force, which is really what we saw in the data, then that means that it's a really, really strong market. Kevin, we see it quite clearly in the data. You see it in a participation rate. There is one worry that's taking place elsewhere. This economy, the headline numbers look rock solid. There is some nervousness from some of the officials in the Republican Party as well, and it's around the tariff story that could possibly negate the positive effect of the fiscal stimulus that your administration has introduced. Are you concerned about that, Kevin? Well, look, make no mistake about it. The president has the right objective that he wants to make trade deals fair. He wants to make them better than they are right now. There's a heck of a lot of problems. Non-tariff barriers, you mentioned them in the previous story, how China might raise non-tariff barriers in response to this. Well, they've already got them left and right. They're doing forced technology transfer and so on. And so the objective is to make trade deals better, and that should be good for the economy. And I think, you know, the president wrote the art of the deal. I think that we're going to start to see those deals. And as an economist, I also look at the data. I guess that's why I'm here, right? And, and, and one of the things that we've been watching for is negative impact in the data from uh, the anxiety over over trade and if you look at this jobs report then one of the key places where you would see that would be in the metal using industries because the steel and aluminum tariffs are in place and we actually saw employment increase in the downstream industries in this jobs report and so there isn't uh, clear evidence in the data that the anxiety over trade is being harmful to the industries that we would most uh, watch uh, for harm in and and I think that that's probably because these people all understand that the president's driving the world towards a better equilibrium. Well, Kevin, I'm not sure businesses understand that because the Federal Reserve in their minutes were pretty clear yesterday. The following quote, contacts in some districts indicated that plans for capital spending had been scaled back or postponed as a result of uncertainty over trade policy. What do you make of that, Kevin? 
Well, that was an anecdote, and, and the question is, what's in the data? And in the latest capital spending data we have, capital spending is booming. And if we look at the industries that could be most negatively affected, in, in theory, uh, from the trade dispute, they're actually booming as well and hiring more workers. And so if they were really concerned about it, we would have expected to see layoffs. Well, the administration we is certainly hoping there's going to be this stimulus that drives a supply-side response, increased business investment. As you know, Kevin, confidence leads CapEx decisions. And when the president came into the White House, confidence went through the roof. I haven't met a CEO yeah. that's too confident about this trade story as it evolves. Do you foresee any complications over the coming months? Why, yeah, I think that the confidence is going to skyrocket once the president starts to deliver deals. And I think in the coming months, you're going to start to see those deals. So in the coming months, we're going to see some deals. And it raises the question, yeah. what is the minimum condition for success? Because I've spoke to many people around this table over the last few months that still quite can't get a handle on what the minimum condition for success is with this ambition to get better deals. What is the minimum condition for success, Kevin? Well, I think the president's been pretty clear that he wants deals that are reciprocal. He wants other countries to reduce their barriers to the level that we have. And I think that, you know, minimum conditions, those are the things that the negotiators work out. And I'm just, you know, the economic advisor. I'm not the negotiator. But I think that we want to move pretty much towards reciprocal deals. See, the president at the G7 meeting said, let's take everybody, uh, take our tariffs to zero. And it seemed like some of our trading partners got pretty anxious about that offer. But it shows that the president's serious that he's going to make the deals better. Is there a real chance that we could take tariffs? down to zero. Let's talk about the autos. There's a report coming out of Germany recently that we could get auto tariffs down to zero. Kevin, do you actually see there being a real chance? And away from the hysteria yeah. on the front page of the newspaper, how much talks are happening behind the scenes, high-level talks between trade negotiators on either side? Well, you'd have to interview the trade negotiators about what their talks look like. Uh, but the briefing that I've been getting is that things are moving forward, that there's a good chance that we're going to start to make deals. And it's very heartening to see that, uh, as you mentioned, that, say, the European automakers are saying, yeah, let's take the president at his word and let's move things towards zero. Now, they might have to, you know, they might be offering that while not wanting to reduce their non-tariff barriers. And so we have to see, right, like how it all works out. But in the end, if we have fully reciprocal deals, then the president's uh, approach will have proven correct. Kevin, I know it's not your turf, so I want to get away from it just for a moment and talk about the Federal okay. Reserve, which, to be honest with you, is in your ground. I mean, it's something that you watch and you carefully proceed with caution to talk about, I'm sure. It was really interesting recently. For many people, this administration has been so careful about the Federal Reserve, nominated some great candidates to the Fed, really not interfered with Federal Reserve policy. And then a crack emerged last week when Larry Kudlow, I'm sure a friend of yours, the economic advisor to the president, stepped in with a not too subtle message for the Fed not to go too quickly. Is this administration concerned about the Fed going too quickly? You know, we absolutely 100 percent, Larry and I and the president, we respect the independence of the Fed. We've appointed great people to the Fed. Some of them still have to be confirmed and they, they should hopefully be confirmed quickly. But we 100 percent respect the independence of the Fed. Larry always did. He did last week. I thought that story was miscovered. Uh, he was uh, speculating about something that, that, you know, I guess I won't speculate about now. But the fact is that Larry 100 percent respects the independence of the Fed. We would never, ever try to pressure them to do anything other than what they think is right. And we meet with them. You know, I have lunch uh, with the uh, Jay Powell and the other governors once a month. And, and we meet and we talk about how the economy is yeah. doing. But even at those private lunches, I never say, hey, come on, cut me some slack on interest rates. It would be totally inappropriate well, Kevin, uh, for us. To maybe do that. not privately but this took place quite publicly in an interview with the following quote, faster economic growth does not no, cause inflation. My hope is that they understand that they will have to move very slowly. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Larry was responding to a question and without, you know, 
giving the Fed advice, let me just say that as an economist, if you look at a, a cycle, let's even step outside of this one. So we're talking theoretically. If you have a capital spending boom, then that can put downward pressure on prices and allow late in a cycle uh, for GDP growth to be high without creating a lot of inflation. And so if we see a capital spending boom, then economic theorists would tell you then that might be that there's less risk in prices. But I would never uh, advise the Fed about it. And, and they're more adept at, at looking at inflation than I am. Uh, they've got hundreds of economists that have been doing it for their whole careers. And we respect their independence. I know you respect their independence. And the economic theory surely yeah. does make sense. But when you say the following words, my hope is that they understand that they will move very slowly. That's not subtle at all, Kevin. I want to reiterate he's that not, point. Oh, come on, he's not lobbying them, but 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 he's you know, not? I, I, you can bring Larry, bring Larry on and, and ask him. But but I can say that what Larry's thinking in his head, which is what I'm thinking, is that we've got a capital spending boom going on, and that that should hopefully make it. In, but we're going to, in the end, it's going to be the proof will be in the pudding. The proof will be in the data, just like we talked about. Like, do we see the trade, uh, the down, the potential downside risks showing up in the job data, and they didn't. So ultimately, it'll be in the data. And I think what Larry is saying is he's hoping the data turn out to prove our theory is correct. Okay. Kevin Hassett, always great to get your thoughts. Payroll's looking solid. Here, the economy looking good. Uh, much more on the trade story, I'm sure, from the White House in the coming months. Kevin Hassett there, the uh, economic advisor to the president and uh, joining us, the chairman of the National Economic Council of Advisors, Mohamed Alari. John Farrell. John Farrell with a spirited conversation there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.